0: Welcome to What Happens Off Screen, a podcast that dives into the human side of what happens behind the scenes of the creator economy. The entire industry is built on relationships. Relationships between brands and creators, creators and their audience, service providers and clients, and on and on and on. This is not just a podcast about ROI or best practices. It's about what it's really like to be in the thick of this explosive industry highlighting a range of perspectives and helping creators, marketers, service providers, and folks who are just generally interested in how it all works learn from each other. My name is Meredith Jacobson, and 2024 marks my 10-year anniversary working in the creator space. I run a business called Offscreen Resources, where I place freelancers with gigs and full-time professionals with new jobs. Each episode, I will be joined by a guest in the creator economy from C-suite executives, boots-on-the-ground campaign managers, brand marketers, creators, creators and everyone in between. On this episode of What Happens Off Screen, I'm joined by Lauren Elias. Lauren and I first met back in 2016 when she was named as one of the top rising stars in digital by Synopsys Media. At the time, I was living in New York City and looking to connect with as many people in the space as I could because it was still a pretty small industry back then. I reached out to almost everybody on that list and Lauren was among the few that actually responded to me. She and I met for coffee and I remember being so grateful at the time that she was willing to connect with me because I learned a lot just from that one meeting. She had a perspective from being on the network side that I didn't have any access to being from scrappy influencer agencies. We stayed in touch here and there and worked on a few campaigns over the course of the time that I was working for agencies and brands. We recently reconnected as she has a little bit more time and is pondering her next career move, and it's been a lot of fun to spend more time with her recently. I'm excited to have her on the podcast to share her perspective on work from the talent side of things as she's seen some of the biggest and most exciting partnerships out there. Hey there, Lauren. Welcome to the podcast. What's up? How's it going, Meredith? Well, you know. Happy to be here. Very happy to have you. I've only been looking forward to this for like six weeks or six years. It really depends how you ask. If you want to start, I'd love to hear just your story. How many years have you been in the space? What do you do? Where did you come from? Tell me everything. (laughs) Okay, so let's see. Uh, I
1: think around a little over 12 years of professional experience now and 10 in the creator economy, I started out with what I considered my dream role, which is in MTV's talent and casting department during the heyday of the Jersey Shore, which that's that was great. It taught me a lot about uh, talent. And a few years there led me to Viacom's integrated marketing department, which was my first foray into like official influencer marketing, marketing Um What we now deem the creator economy, which uh, I helped to spearhead the talent partnerships and influencer strategy division within Viacom Velocity, which was really just about, you know, when. The different brands came to any of the Viacom properties to launch campaigns or events. We were the team that would help to complement those campaigns with different talent and or influencers. So that was just an, an amazing learning and a great team that that whole world was new to me. It was ad sales. It was insights. It was integrated marketing. And so for someone coming from pure talent and casting, it was an entry point into something that I was like fascinating to me, a whole different world. Definitely cut my teeth there before uh, leaving after a few years and going to an agency for 10 months. Um, Everyone told me I wouldn't last more than two years. And I was like, nah, I got this. I got this. And they were right. 10 months, 10 months. And through that all, you know, I, I had been, Staying in touch with a lot of the contacts that i had made during my Viacom days, one of which was Courtney Carter. And so when she decided to peel off from CAA and start her own management company, Carter Media Group, I was hire number three and led the talent and brand partnerships uh, division of her team, which was epic. I learned so much. Um, I was there for about five years
0: until October. And- Kind of like to go back for a second, because when I met you, I think you were still at Viacom, And I'm curious now hearing you went from MTV to spearheading these initiatives, like what was that like for you at that stage, sort of being a pioneer within a huge corporation?
1: I mean, imposter syndrome still to this day and probably forever, right? But at the time, yeah, I guess I was considered the expert because I was doing so much of that talent and casting at MTV and entering into this world of like, these were all salespeople. These were, these were marketing people and and data type people. They were not, you know, while they were all creative, there was just never a lane for them to understand talent from the human side. It was always like uh, ROI measurements and, you know, what can this person do for me? And so to be able to approach it from like, being able to cast people that I really thought were worthy of of these different campaigns and try to teach the different departments why. And, you know, even up to the CMO, it was like this whole new world of understanding talent. And for me, for me, talent and influencer is, is synonymous. I think like, and I think that's a lot of what can sometimes be a miss in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into that too. But like, I treated influencer the same way that you would treat show talent the same way that you would treat celebrity. Like these are just people that have stories to share. And that was kind of how I led, um, I guess, the journey that got me through where I was and and why I think it had an impact uh, at Viacom for sure.
0: Yeah. I guess going back to MTV and when you first started with working with talent were there specific moments that come to mind that you felt like you got to know talent as people?
1: you know, as we as we know now, treating talent as equals, we are all in this same industry. We are all just doing different jobs in this industry
0: mm-hmm.
1: was kind of how i how I worked and how I continued to work. And so, at MTV it was very much like okay I'm behind the scenes but you're in front of the scenes and you're doing a job too and for you to do your job you need x y and z for me to do mine I need x y and z let's work together to accomplish those things that's where that's where that sentiment was formed for me and that's kind of where I how I carry role to this day.
0: Yeah, no. The reason I was thinking about it is when I was in my first job, I was in a role where I had exposure to both sides of the business. So I was managing a roster of talent in, in partnership with my boss and also selling partnerships, working internally to sell influencer. And then I would be in these situations where, you know, I would be on a pitch and then I'd bring it to the talent and I'd hear their honest thoughts because I was also the manager. Whereas when you're on the brand side and you know, you're just representing the brand, they'll just sometimes say yes or no. And they don't give you any explanation. But when you have that visibility into how they're thinking about things and why, and when I then switched to being mostly on the brand side, I had a different level of respect for their craft and the way that they see things than people who had never had exposure to talent management.
1: Right, that was the same for me. Like, you know, moving from MTV to Viacom were two very different roles because one was you were on the talent side, and the next you were essentially on the brand side. You know, um, having to figure out what what worked for the brand and how to keep them coming back uh, to con- to continue to buy. Right, and so it just completely transformed the way that I worked with talent because. It really was the beginning stages of just like, I'm on the talent side. I understand this perspective on things. And I want to carry that throughout all of the work that I do, regardless of what side of the aisle I'm sitting on.
0: What have been some of the most rewarding relationships that you've had either with your talent clients, your brand clients, your peers? When I thought about this question, I like,
1: again, I I don't know if I wanted to single any out, but I will say- uh, the ones that have held the most weight for me been the most enjoyable or have resulted from actual friends, friendships outside of the the work is when you work with people that just meet you with an honest and human work ethic or work perspective. Like I can't tell you again, there's a lot of times with this role or in this industry that you are sometimes I don't want to say working against each other, mm-hmm. but you have different priorities in mind. And I'm totally cool with that. I've been on both sides of it, but I think what brings me the most joy is when these two people can be honest about the perspectives that they're coming from and meet in a compromise in the middle that is fair and just for all parties involved and doing it with a human connection, You know, whether that's constantly picking up the phone and i will say that that is what i learned very early on pick up the phone talk to someone meet them where they are i think as soon as someone listens to your voice hears your voice hears your emotion you're getting a much different response from people um meet those people for drinks for coffee for lunches really be able to just be yourself with someone and then the work can always flow much easier and you can understand all the different perspectives involved. And so I would say those have been the most rewarding working relationships is just being having a human connection with people and working to the same shared goal from different perspectives.
0: That is the ideal what you just described, but it's not built overnight. Is there an example of someone that you can think of that, you know, it was sort of a a work in progress to get to that relationship, but then you did.
1: I'll I'll use Jay-Z's line from Um, the Grammys this past Sunday. But he was like, when I get nervous, I tell the truth. And I'm like, uh, for me, I think I can say it because I have been on the agency side. But when there are middlemen involved in campaign creation, campaign execution, it makes the waters so much muddier. And so, again, like not naming names, I think any – I won't say all of them, mm-hmm. but when there are agencies involved, it is hard. It is. It feels so more, much more transactional a lot of the time. Not all the time. A lot of the time it's like, gosh, sometimes I really just want to be able to call the person that's making this decision and explain it from my perspective and not have to play telephone for you to get a watered down response. Or watered down answer as to what I'm actually saying, and vice versa. And I, you know, just having a middleman in between as like the catch all, and it a lot of times is doesn't need to be the case. I'm speaking from a privileged space, I guess, because a lot of brands just need need agency support, right? Mm-hmm. But like, gosh, does it muddy the waters a lot, and does it not? allow for honest communication a lot of the time and oftentimes a watered down uh, result.
0: That's an interesting hot take, first of all. Um, hot, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this, there's no apologies this might, here. Yeah. This, is, this is why we're here because that perspective that you're bringing is coming from, it sounds like from your most recent experience working with Carter, right? Um, no, I would also probably say
1: um, my time at an agency.
0: Mm, and see. my time at Viacom. So you were the, you're you're reflecting on your times and thinking that you were the one muddying the water.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had to be the protector mm-hmm. of the brand while you were on the agency side. And that meant you had to do a lot of translation and a lot of sometimes just like letting people down nicely or whatever, whatever it was that like, I say I lasted 10 months because I couldn't show up honestly a lot of the time. Mm hot take but it it is my take again it's not i've had i've had an amazing experience with a lot of agencies
0: where i've sort of landed in the the value prop of agencies is that there are plenty of scenarios in which they are helpful to the brand partners and that they do provide a lot of value but to your point it is challenging when there's just so many cooks in the kitchen. And yes, I think that an agency is the most successful when they have trust with their brand partner and when they have clear direction from their brand partner and when they're not just scrambling to figure out, you know, to, to make things happen when they are not empowered to be doing their best work. And unfortunately, that's part of the problem is that they're in a place where like you just said, you're cleaning up after the brand, you know, that all roads lead to the brand on that one. <laughs> A hundred percent. That's, that's the
1: truth. When you, when an agency can establish trust with a, with a brand partner, whether it's been years of experience, whether they are the agency of record or they just know what is going on from top to bottom at their brand partner, you know, with their brand partner. um, Those are, yes, those have been the times that you can the work has been pleasurable. Right. But it is very telling when agencies do not have that level of trust with a brand. And it comes out in many ways.
0: Have you seen did you see over the course of your time on the talent management side, programs evolve year over year and become more sophisticated or less sophisticated if there was a shift or anything, you know, that would be an interesting story about how one of your creators built a long term because i know there's a lot of talk about long term relationships versus one off short relationships and i think that the one offs and the campaigns are the things that are the most talked about and then the long term relationships are always kind of talked about at a high level but not really people don't actually go into them that often um i'm curious if you because you were there for so long like if you got to see any of those evolve over time a
1: handful yeah um and that's i think what I don't want to say what our bread and butter was, but our goal for sure. Um, I think every creator or talent wants a long-term partner. The same reason that an agency wants a long-term brand and vice versa, right? Like to build that trust, to build that audience alignment, to build that storytelling. We had it with a few. And I think as time went on, you could easily be able to call one another out honestly. You could develop programming that worked for both parties involved. But I find I find the long term ones when you can do them um, are most successful for the same reasons that anyone wants a long term partner.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Do
0: you ever get brought on for long term partnerships? I mean, I've done it on both sides, right? Because I've been on the brand side and structured some long term partnerships. In the last few years on behalf of the brands and then have been on the receiving side in the last few years with my TikTok star, it is cool to see the variety of things that you can bring to life.
1: Yeah. I I think it's also just, it's kind of like the most believable of marketing for me. And the reason that I entered into this space is like, look, one-offs are always going to generate a lot of money for your clients. That's a given. But well, not a. I don't know. Depending on who your clients are, it's usually a given. But the long term partnerships are the ones that like they mean the most. I mean, you're you're in it for the long haul. You've got a trusted partner that believes in your vision, in your aesthetic, in your audience, and the work that you do. Uh, I think as talent, beyond building their bank accounts, like they really can't ask for for anything more than a a partner who believes in their mission.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that it's, that's why I, yeah, it's, I mean, it's making sure that it's an authentic fit too. You know, it's just. 100%. Everyone loves that word. authentic. And I would hope
1: that you you're not going into a long-term partnership, whether you're the brand or the talent, if it's not a fit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true though. I will say that I have seen with some long-term partnerships performance go down over time and excitement about the partnerships minimize over time. And so that's, that's one of the things going into this year that I'm thinking about and balancing is how do you keep it fresh? And how do you decide, okay, you know, this is either not a creator that we should keep working with, or, you know, is there a different way that might re-engage the audience and bring that ROI back and also making sure that you're looking at it as a holistic okay well you know if two of the videos didn't perform well but three did still nets out to being a valuable partnership
1: yeah I don't disagree there I think both internally and externally sentiment
0: can probably decrease over time if you went and worked for a brand tomorrow what would you recommend that they include in their contracts
1: I am always operating from a place of honesty. I never am trying to get one over. So I'm going to give an example. Pepsi owns every type of beverage possible. But for Pepsi to be doing a month-long deal with a partner, but ask for a year long of exclusivity on soda and water and energy and tea and coffee. I'm just like, how, how is this truly affecting your business unless we are to work together again in nine months? Mm -hmm. What do
0: you think? Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the, the approach that I've taken in the past with something like that, if somebody's looking for long-term usage and exclusivity, I recommend that we create more content because it's like, Mm -hmm. it's going to be expensive for you. Might as well pay for (laughs) it. Yeah. Like, Get, get something out of it. Yeah. I think that it's just leading with honesty and leading with transparency is figuring out as a brand, what, what protections do you need? Yeah. You know, what's realistic to ask for? And then what budget range are you, you know, what are you asking? What are you offering in terms of budget? It's like, if you have enormous budgets, you want that exclusivity. Like if that's really important to you and you're willing to pay for it, then I guess you do you. But if you are not operating with huge budgets, then it's understanding the implications of asking for that exclusivity and why it's not fair to do so and just limiting it to okay, what's the window that will matter, you know. Brands are coming around to that. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, like you alluded to earlier, you got to work with some pretty high profile creators at Carter. Were there patterns mm-hmm. that you noticed that differentiated them from creators that we sort of like still struggling to make it still rising stars that didn't rise
1: yeah um I think there is a very particular work ethic that comes with someone at that level of success um, I think you know like they wake up every morning and subconsciously or not, they are making hundreds if not thousands of decisions that affect their brand image that affect a lot of people that do work on behalf of them i mean their their brand and who they present to the world is everything and like every decision made is will affect what that looks like. And so because of that, because of the fact that their life is just kind of an amalgamation of all these acute decisions, I would say they're pretty particular about a lot of things. And, you know, maybe that leads to being critical of a lot of things because they are in protection mode of what their brand is. And I think with a lot of successful creators, their whole life is a brand. They're putting out morning, noon, and night, and, and that's what audiences want to see. And so the decision-making that has to go into that and the work ethic that has to go into that is something I've really never seen with people
0: mm-hmm. uh, that are not at that level. I guess with that, is burnout inevitable with that? Or have you seen people figure out how to successfully manage it so that they, they haven't gotten to that point? I think it's got to be,
1: right, from a human perspective it's just everyday like having to make micro decision i i don't know i mean we all make decisions but when they're on display in that way it it, it has to lead to burnout unless you are i mean doing a, a level of protecting yourself that i haven't seen in this space yet and mm-hmm. maybe isn't talked about enough you know you see a lot of creators now just they'll be huge um, and then you'll, you won't hear from them for a long time. Yeah. If ever again,
0: I witnessed that, you know, the, the biggest example that comes to mind for me was Logan Paul. I worked with him a lot when he first came up and what you just described as that particular level of care and of decision-making was so apparent in all of his work that he was doing. This was pre-Japanese forest and that when it happened that was my reaction my defense in some way of him which is that he burnt out i mean he created a mini documentary of his life every day for 3 years it's mm-hmm. crazy that it didn't happen sooner you know
1: yeah i think as as best as you can and again i'm not really sure the correct answer and i'd love for you to have a content creator on that has this response has a response to this but like one obvious thing to me is like creating boundaries, obviously. I don't know if anyone can successfully do that these days, but creating boundaries. Having people that you truly trust mm-hmm. in your circle, I would imagine is very helpful for staying grounded through, through all of it. Um, that's probably a huge thing that a lot of these creators could stand to do.
0: Mm-hmm. I, think, I think a big part of it too is figuring out your personal mission as a creator because I think that – I think growth is a dangerous one because if you're so focused on growth, then you're going to try to do everything you can to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you figure out something other than the metrics and other than the, the fame or the recognition, if you identify a goal and you work towards that goal – While still protecting yourself, you know, you're, you're doing it in a way that, okay, I have the capacity to do this, this, and this, but kind of knowing, I don't want to also take this on and it's okay because this isn't as necessary to serve that goal. What I'll say is, isn't that the
1: recipe for everyone? Yeah. Like, wouldn't you hope that in order to avoid burnout, it is finding that balance. It is finding your personal mission and whether you can actually like stand for what you you're doing in your nine to five or your nine to nine or whatever like if you truly believe in what you're putting out if you have something to stand on it makes the work a lot more palpable yeah and um yeah helps to get to where you're you're going for sure well
0: and I think I mean I think to go back to to the, make the point that I was trying to make before. I think that creators have so much opportunity, like we were talking about, and there's so many things that they can be doing that it's it's helpful if they identify the thing that they want both in the short term and in the long term and sort of can be forgiving of themselves if they just focus on that and they don't try to make everything happen all at once, you know? It's, it's
1: a delicate balance that a lot of people struggle to master. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very curious if you are to bring on a content creator, I want you to ask that same question. What if and how that is actually possible to achieve, especially the industry now, you know, I think when the industry was in the Logan Paul days, it looked a lot different. People were famous for different reasons. They had you, your attention for a little bit longer. Now, that theme looks way different. And so, you know, you want to talk about a TikTok star, they have to capitalize now. They have to ensure that they are meeting their audience exactly when that, when that first video goes viral or whatever sees, you know, like they need to do that immediately. And they need to continue on that trajectory for as long as their audience will allow. Like that's a whole different, I'd be, that is a whole, hard life to maintain.
0: Mm-hmm. Going back to what I was saying of setting a goal, I think that in the next five to 10 years, the interplay between people's online personas and the opportunities that they have offline will continue to evolve where you'll have this this generation of younger people who are so technologically savvy and have been creating content about what they're passionate about and you know i'm hopeful that that will help them figure out jobs that might not be content creation jobs but can be used to show hey i have editing skills or project management skills because i was able to produce all this content or you know for some of the like the diyers right like people will get jobs working on some of these projects that have nothing to do with the internet but because they were discovered by say they have 30,000 followers and they get put up for a job or you know, an opportunity and they're able to point to, well, this is, this is what I've done to prove that I'm skilled at what I'm saying I'm skilled at. Yeah. It's a whole different
1: market now. You know, uh, the creators that I've worked with, they are not just the front facing creators. They will be the ones to edit their own videos, carefully curate, you know, their own reels or anything. And I think that was always all consuming but now you know with gen z and this different age of creator that is is brought up doing the edits doing these things like in no time it looks different.
0: Yep. So anyway, we reconnected recently as when you stepped away from Carter and so now you've had you've had lots of years on both sides of the business and do you have thoughts on what you're going to do next? Um, you know, I'm Four months out,
1: out of Carter Media Group and um, still figuring out what exactly it looks like. I'll tell you one thing that I need to carry with me, and I've done a lot of work to you know, figure this out, but anything that I do, for, for better or worse, like I need to care. I need to care about what I'm working on. It is a much better result.
0: Yeah. Is there anyone, if there's somebody listening to this podcast, is there anyone in particular that you want to meet? Not like the person, but anyone that should reach out to you? I think, you know, brands that are
1: just putting good into the world, right? Like the food brands that have been um, developed by people that are just like, hey, I see this white space of people need this line and I want to do it. You know, I think founders that come from, you know, a place mm-hmm. where they're starting from scratch and they want to build, I like really believe in that. Mental mental health space, um, I know that's a big thing. Um, people navigating different areas of their lives. I think if you are a brand putting some good into the world or have a backstory that, you know, the reason that you created this brand, that is all I can ask for, I think, is just really caring about yeah. the work.
0: And I mean, I think the benefit to that from the freelance perspective as well if you're a brand listening to this and you're you're starting on day 0 and you don't have a huge full-time salary ready to to pay somebody who wants to help with creator partnerships like i've found so many mission-based brands and nonprofits and mm-hmm. you know companies like that you know if they reach out to me then i direct them towards the people that care about their cause and Obviously, it sounds like if you're a food or mental health brand, you should reach out to Lauren. And, you know, there's (laughs) two things I love. Yeah. And there's, and dogs, clearly. You know, I was on a VidCon panel last June and somebody said the phrase that you have clients that are either brand builders or bank builders. And, Mm. you know, they were talking about it in terms of talent, but that's really how I've structured my consulting business is that. You know, as long as I'm at a point where I have clients that I'm able to pay my bills, then I'm able to take on projects here and there that I just believe in and I want to help and I figure out a way to do it, even if the budgets aren't quite what they need to be, you know, if I really believe in it. So I'm always yeah.
1: That. I like that. Brand builders or bank builders? Yeah. I mean,
0: it's been almost a year and I haven't forgotten Both about it. Both are needed, so. right? Both yeah. are necessary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well... Thank you very much for coming on today. I think both of our dogs are screaming and ready for dinner. So, yeah. <laughs> when like yeah. the sun has set in my house, <laughs> so <laughs> it's like it's gotten progressively darker over the course of this conversation. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate you getting honest and sharing all your insights. And it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you so
1: much for having me. This was, uh, it's always fun to talk to you.
0: Well, that's all for this episode of What Happens Off Screen. Be sure to rate, like, and subscribe to What Happens Off Screen wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Meredith Jacobson. And it's time for me to go ahead to happy hour with a brand marketer.